1: That they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery, Mystery of everything, everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. And the Thracians were like, fuck this noise. When the general's army came through your territory, you made him bleed. For every inch of land he gained, you made him feel the cost. He paid for his victory in blood and lives. When it came time for you to surrender, you knew you could go to the afterlife happy with what you'd done. You might not have defeated him, but you carved your name in the destruction you wrought against his army. When you were brought before the general, he was just a man. Not the legend you were led to believe. And he was so much younger than you'd thought. Barely more than a child. He smiled at you and told you to rise. You fought well. You lost, but you fought well. I will take your lands, but I have a job for you, a way to allow you to keep your homes and lives. We will be continuing our march into Asia. There are lands yet to conquer, plunder and glory, and enemies the likes of which you've never seen before. You can join me now as part of my army. You can keep your homes and your lives, or... He trails off into silence, and the threat is implicit. He doesn't need to say anything else. You stare at the general, but say nothing. If this job is not honorable, then the entire tribe would rather die than serve this self-styled king, this Alexander the Great, this child. You glance at your wife standing next to you in the general's tent, her head thrown back, her shoulders unbowed, and her body unbent. You can read her answer in a single glance. She is willing to die for you, and you have never loved her more. But there is no need for death today. Plunder? Tell us more about your great conquest, general. And so that is how you've arrived on this new battlefield under a new sun, facing a new enemy that none of your people has seen before. When he first told you about them, you didn't believe him. This small mountain of a creature that thunders across the land like an earthquake. But you are not afraid. Your people have killed great aurochs, and you've broken the wildest horses. This creature will hold no challenge. Your warriors follow you. Brave men and women, all of them armed with ramphayas, Long, wicked weapons deadly enough to hamstring a horse or behead a man in one blow. The general warned you how they attack, how quickly they move, how they will break over your line. But you only smiled. Not even this fearsome beast can kill a ghost. And your warriors have been ghosts on the battlefield since before this boy was born. Now the great general has held you in reserve, you and your warriors watch in hiding from the forests as the elephants roll over the muddy fields of battle, tall, graceful mountains of muscle and mayhem, richly adorned and painted in colorful patterns, shielded in armor. It will not make a difference. You grip the haft of your Yoramphaya, the long, vicious weapon, none more perfect for this task. You feel a deep sadness at what you must do, to kill or wound a thing so magnificent is almost unforgivable. Your warriors wait concealed in the forest, so quiet you can only hear a few of Mixale's soft breaths filled with wonder, all of them ready to die. Almost unforgivable. It is you or them. You melt out of the shadow and attack.
0: I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl.
1: In our last episode, we delved into the mythology of the ancient Thracians. We looked at their legends, gods and goddesses, religion, and beliefs. We painted a picture of these proud warriors who occupied the lands in and around Bulgaria, Western Turkey, Southern Russia, and Serbia. We showed you who these people were, what their contemporary Greek and Roman chroniclers thought about them, and today we're going to show you how they lived, loved, fought, and died.
0: As we mentioned in part one, much of what we know about the Thracians comes to us from contemporary Greek and Roman sources. The Thracians didn't leave behind detailed accounts of their day-to-day lives, but they did leave behind some clues in the archaeology that has been found in many Thracian territories, and so in this episode we'll be using both ancient sources and modern archaeology to try to breathe life back into these epic people. So, who were the Thracians? It's a question that has puzzled a lot of people for a long time. The short answer is that there were no Thracians, just a series of different tribes of people who occupied the same mountainous region and were lumped into one group by the Greeks and Romans. The
1: Thracians, as we said in the last episode, were an Indo-European people who occupied a large sweep of territory that encompassed parts of modern-day southern Russia, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Turkey. They also lived on the shores of the Black Sea. Their territory was cold, mountainous, thickly forested, and diverse. While it's difficult to say how long these people lived in this territory, what's defined as proto-Thracian culture is believed to have arisen in this area around 1,500 B.C. Although there's evidence of grave goods going all the way back to 5,000 B.C.
0: The dates are a little fuzzy. Yeah, the dates are fuzzy. So, the Thracians, much like the Gauls, weren't one people. They weren't a monolith. Instead, they were a group of tribes, some of whom were allies, many of whom were enemies. They were just as likely to war with each other as they were to war with outside invaders. And it's important to remember that as we move forward, because as Herodotus tells us, quote, if they were under one ruler or united, they would, in my judgment, be invincible and the strongest nation on earth. And these divides pretty much explain the chasms in the Thracian communities that left them open to outside invaders like Persia, Greece, and Rome. But let's start at the beginning. The
1: first incredibly tenuous written reference to the Thracians is in the Iliad. Is the Iliad a historical account of an actual 10-year war between Greece and Troy? I mean, no, it's mythology, it's folklore. But what the Iliad does is give us a look at who the Thracians were, as perceived by Homer and Greek folklore, and what their role would have been in this martial conflict. And that actually matters because it shows us how the Thracians were viewed by the Greeks as far back as the 8th century BC, which is as far back as the written version of the Iliad dates to, but you can be sure there were probably folklore and like sung and spoken word versions that were even older than that. In the Iliad, the Thracians fought on the side of the Trojans, so they were the enemies of Greece. And this makes sense historically and geographically because part of Thrace is located above northern Greece and the Greeks and Thrace had a very uneasy peace, a peace that was frequently broken because here's the thing. The Thracians like to come down and do some raiding in ancient Greece and just like get their plunder on. And then the Greeks like to come up into Thrace and Hellenize or colonize parts of Thrace. And a lot of the stuff that we know is because later on archaeologists found it written down in either like Greek or Latin due to the area of Thrace that was either Romanized or Hellenized, i.e. colonized.
0: Yeah, the area that we define as Thrace, which is kind of loosely defined, has a long history of colonization and conquering by other peoples, which is why it's kind of complicated to try and tease out who the Thracians were.
1: Yeah. And there's so much cultural exchange going on between the Thracians and their neighbors and some stuff that may have originated in Thrace, like we were talking about with the folklore last time, you actually see in Gothic cultures as well. So it's impossible to say this came from Thrace and went over here or this came from here and went there. So I think Thrace is like one of those places that's kind of like in the middle of everything. It's like a big old melting pot for lots and lots of different things. So, according to Homer, a Thracian king called Rhesus, whose name actually means red-haired, I mean, yes please, um... So, Jenny, what color hair do you think Rhys has had?
0: I guess he's
1: a brunette. You and your brunette pride, man. He was a ginger! I'm shocked! Shocked, I say! And this ancient world ginger arrived on the shores of Troy to end the siege. He was bringing much-needed reinforcements. His men were horse lords, skilled and feared warriors, famous for their ferocity. Rhys had his golden armor. I mean, yes, possibly I'm related to him. It's a possibility.
0: If Jen has to wear armor, it's going to be gold and blingy and shiny. Would I be there in gold armor? I mean rose
1: gold armor yes please if anyone believes I could afford gold armor let me tell you something
0: plate that bit (laughs) I mean listen we're in fantasy land right now you're allowed to have gold armor it doesn't cost anything good because I was just thinking about how much gold costs (laughs) have to do a lot of plundering for that that's right why do you think people plunder
1: Jen direct connection I mean plundering is not nice and I would not be doing plundering not cool
0: please do not plunder we do not encourage plunder here on ancient history fangirl we frown on plundering we frown on plundering it's not okay we frown we're frowning right now (laughs) anyway Rhesus
1: had his epic golden armor and the best damn warriors and horses in the ancient world some of them might have been women but they were probably all men because it's the iliad so the greeks had to resort to trickery to best the thracians odysseus and diomedes attacked the thracians while they were asleep slaughtered them and stole their famous horses and armor I
0: don't think Cucullin would approve of this. Cucullin does not approve. That's totally what I thought, Cucullin. I immediately thought of you. I was like Cucullin would just shake his head and be like, those guys are chodebags.
1: Chodebags!
0: That's right. Cucullin thinks that Odysseus and Diomedes are chodebags here. This is totally not on board with the ancient heroic warrior culture.
1: It's really not at all, and it's interesting that we're seeing this at the end of the Iliad, like when everything is really breaking down, because the Odyssey and the Iliad are completely different. Like the Iliad is all about this epic warrior culture and heroes, and the Odyssey is all about one man and then what he does to get home. And there's a lot of trickery and there's a lot of potentially dishonorable stuff. It's a really interesting change in folk tales and storytelling.
0: So for people like the Thracians who believed in dying an honorable death in battle, this- This was a huge insult, but it solved a big problem. It's very likely the Greeks wouldn't have been able to defeat the Thracians without some clever trap or trick. The Thracians were feared in antiquity. They were the best mercenaries. They were the guys who rocked up and settled a battle pretty quickly, and the beleaguered Greeks might have really struggled to beat them back by the light of day. On horseback, the Thracians could have turned the tide of the war, so they had to be disposed of as quickly as possible. This depiction of the Thracians is important because it sets the stage for everything we're going to uncover in the episode. And what's interesting about this depiction of the Thracians is that it's so old, like this predates... Ancient Rome itself.
1: It does. It predates Herodotus. It predates so many things. It's one of those, like, tantalizing glimpses that when we start trying to unwind and figure out who the Thracians were, like, this is the earliest reference we have, and they look a very particular way, which, given the area that they're coming from, it's a very odd description.
0: That sort of martial stereotype and the association with red hair just tells us that those are older than the Republic of Rome itself.
1: They're really old.
0: The Thracians were so fierce, their horses so coveted, their armor so golden and well-made that these people were terrifying to their neighbors and maybe, you know, a little scary but also a little awesome. They were great to have on your side in a fight, but to stand against them, that was asking for certain destruction. So that is what Homer
1: tells us about the Thracians. He also tells us that the legendary Thracian King Rhesus had red hair and a beard, but what? did the Thracians actually look like? Because I don't 100% buy that description.
0: Doesn't 100% buy the red hair thing?
1: According to the ancient sources, the Thracians were tall, well-built, and they had red hair and blue eyes. We can see descriptions of them in poets like Xenophanes and in artwork like Greek pottery depicting Thracians as red-haired and blue-eyed. There are many Thracian teams that have the word rufus inscribed on them, which means red hair in Latin. And... The Romans used that word as a sort of slang name for Thracians when they enslaved them.
0: I remember you telling me this fact, and I was like, why was the word rufus, which was, I guess, a slang term? I don't know if it was a slur. I'm not sure. I read this in, like, one source. I do think it, it possibly was. Why would they be carving
1: that in their tombs in Latin? The answer is probably in which area of Thrace was Hellenized and which area of Thrace was Romanized. What I have to assume here is that what we're looking at is a bit later on in time, where we have more of a cultural bleed and where the language we're probably seeing on these tombs has more Latin in it, because we don't know what the written Thracian language looked like.
0: I don't think they had a written language, did they? I mean, this may have been a culture that didn't write things down. That's what I'm guessing. So... Here's the thing.
1: Modern academics argue that the Thracians probably looked more like ancient Greeks with the same dark hair and features, or potentially like their Scythian neighbors. This idea of red hair and blue eyes seems like a strange othering description that is given to the Thracians to make them stand out from their Greco-Roman counterparts. It helps give a clear visual to these ancient world boogeymen and women. However, as you know, I really want to believe Team Ginger, but I have some side eye.
0: So what you're saying is that most of the Thracians probably were not redheads? Well, again, I think it
1: probably depends on what area of Thrace we're talking about. If you're talking about areas where you have a massive, like, Gallic and Gothic overlap, then yeah, they probably were tall redheads. If you're talking about people who have more interactions with Greece or with Scythia, they would not look like redheads. I could be totally wrong. And I think modern archaeologists and historians are kind of coming down on like the side of, but really, why would they look like that?
0: Seems like the historical or archaeological consensus is they didn't all necessarily have red hair. In fact, many of them are probably darker skinned and darker haired. It would make sense that some of them would if they were near Gallic and Germanic cultures, because those people tended to be more fair haired. And taller in general.
1: It's impossible to know. And like the thing about it, as we always say when we're talking about like the Gauls or the Thracians or the Goths, they weren't one tribe. And the Romans and Greeks had this massive swath of land that they were like, this area is all Thrace. And it's like, okay, but the people in the middle of this area and the people on the side of this area may have nothing to do with each other. Or they may have cultures that tendentially touch, but they're not the same.
0: Or it's like, you know, with the Celtic cultures, which stretched from the UK to Turkey, they all shared certain cultural signifiers. They all had similar mythographies and a similar world outlook and fought kind of the same in battle and stuff like that. And they had a similar culture, but they definitely did not consider themselves one people, as we've talked about many times. And there was a lot of diversity amongst that group as well.
1: I guess that's really what I'm trying to say. Like, I would love to believe this monolith, that tall redheads with blue eyes, you came down from the mountains to just like plunder and do what they need to do not that i approve of plunder this is the second time i might have come down sounding like i'm team plunder i am not no we
0: disapprove of plunder that is our official stance (laughs) we disapprove of plunder
1: (laughs) like as much as i would love to believe that because like what
0: an interesting fierce way to
1: sort of depict ancient world redheads in the mediterranean i don't think it's realistic And I also think we have our badass redheads who plundered a lot and they were the Vikings.
0: (laughs) Look, Jen, everybody knows that redheads are vampires. That's just a fact. We do. In the ancient world,
1: they were. And like, I could think of so many reasons why that might be if we're going back to their Thracian roots, which is like the way that the Thracians fought when they came into your city was like ghosts coming out of the middle of nowhere. Guerrilla attacks possibly at night. Like, yes, I can see where this came from.
0: Yeah. So... Let's talk about Thracian clothes. The Thracians also dressed differently from their Greco-Roman neighbors. They had a distinctive clothing style. Women and men wore boots, sometimes leggings like their Scythian neighbors, sometimes Chitons like their Greek neighbors, and usually some kind of animal skin or fur. This is tribal, so what we're describing is not one-size-fits-all.
1: They were not wearing togas. They weren't wearing, like, anything very traditional to, like, the Roman dress, which they would have been later on, but I really want to stress that we're talking up until the period where Spartacus rebelled against Rome. We're not talking about, like, Maximinius Thrax or Trojan or other people were interacting with the Thracians. I've really tried to keep this episode up to around Spartacus's time.
0: Yeah. So most Thracians are depicted as wearing Phrygian caps. A Phrygian cap kind of looks to me like a cross between a Canadian Took and a Smurf hat. Like it's got like the sort of forward floppy Smurf hat bit. There's a whole history around the Phrygian cap, which I think would be interesting to get into, but we're not going to dive into it now. And this makes sense because Phrygian caps were warm and the climate of Thrace was mountainous and varied with very cold winters. So... Thracians also had a lot of tattoos. And tattoos were a matter of standing and importance in Thracian tribes. Different tattoos were given to different families and members of the aristocracy according to your rank. Unlike the Greeks, the Thracians believed that tattoos were a sign of high status and a rite of passage. So the higher your rank was in Thracian culture, the more likely you were to have tattoos. Absolutely.
1: And also I suspect a lot of tattoos had to do with different coming of age or maybe martial or religious signifiers that you'd sort of like pass different rituals.
0: Yeah, and we don't know a lot about that and what the specifics would have been. Yeah. So the Thracians were also consummate horse lords and ladies. They were famous for their horses throughout the ancient world. Yeah, particularly they were known for domesticating wild horses and ponies. Who does that remind you of, Jenny? It reminds me of the Scythians. Exactly. And who were their neighbors? The Scythians. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) All this crossover here, like their neighbors, the Scythians, the Thracians broke wild horses and ponies and used them in war. And they also trained, sold, and traded their horses throughout the ancient world. So, in addition to being tall, strapping, tattooed, possible gingers, and definite horse people, what else do we know about the Thracians? In our last episode, we talked about what the Thracians believed. The Thracians believed that life was short, it was a long slog to the grave, and it was filled with sorrow and death. It was really sad. God, kill me now. Why? Why? The goat song. <laughs> bah! Let me tell you of my tragedy. Ba <laughs> That's
1: more Greek, but you get the idea. No, that's from Dionysus. Dionysus is the goat song. So it's possible that the goat song, even though we like think of it as like Greek tragedy, could have also been in the Thracian area. It could have been part of what they were singing to their god.
0: So to recap, (laughs) I'm doubling down on that. Double down on the (laughs) ba. Double down on the goat song, you guys. They didn't fear death. They believed it was important to live in the moment, to live for honor, to fight for your tribe and your king, and to enjoy the good things in life when you had them because the world could change in an instant. It's
1: actually a pretty sound way to be in the ancient world, especially in a place where so often there were fights or skirmishes amongst tribes over resources and land. You were just as likely to have an attack from your neighboring Thracian tribe as you were from an outsider, so having a live-for-the-moment attitude makes a lot of sense. The Thracian tribal land was rich in lots of minerals like gold, copper, iron, and silver. This meant that land was constantly under threat from outsiders who wanted the fertile land and valuable resources. This also meant that the Thracians accumulated a lot of wealth from mining. They were skilled at metalsmithing and produced beautiful gold and silver jewelry, gold and silver plated armor. Jenny, this was only for the kings and aristocrats, so in order to have my ridiculously beautiful gold plated armor, I'd have to be queen somewhere.
0: You'd have to find way to move yourself up in the world, Jen. I can think of ways. I bet you could, lady. (laughs) And you know, they also
1: produced cups and drinking horns and chalices and other blingy things. Their gold and silver jewelry and other goods were in demand throughout the ancient world, including in Greece and Rome. At the beginning of the first millennia BC, the Thracians went through a major production change. This was called the Bronze Age. Once bronze replaced iron as the metal for plowing fields, tools, and weapons, this changed the way the Thracians lived their lives. They were able to get their work done more efficiently, they were able to produce more goods, trade more goods, and in general, this surplus of time gave them more wealth and freedom. And the aristocracy started to take this free time and think, Hmm, what is an honorable way to live?
0: Giving the Thracian aristocracy time on their hands? I don't see how this could go wrong. So they started
1: thinking an honorable way to live is hunting, warring, plundering, and killing people and taking. Killing
0: breaking stuff! We do not approve of of plunder here at Ancient History Fangirl. This is literally the third time we've had to say this. Somehow it feels like we're coming down pro-plunder. It's more complicated than that, but I can totally, see, you know. It's absolutely more
1: complicated than that. And some of it has to do with the land they were living in. Some of it has to do with, like, the way in which they had to project their image so that their neighbors weren't constantly trying to, like, come into their land and take their stuff.
0: Anyway, the Thracian aristocracy, after the Bronze Age
1: everything was more efficient
0: and now there is more free time and the
1: aristocracy is like look I don't have to spend all of my time helping out with like the crops and making things I have like this free time what am I going to do with it what's an honorable way to live and they decided war and pillaging and plunder and that's their way forward. Because Thracians traded in lots of things they got from their warring ways this included plunder and people. Polybius tells us the Greeks bought slaves of quote best quality from the people of Thrace, telling us that the Thracians themselves were selling their own war captives to Greeks as slaves.
0: So archaeology actually tells us a little bit about the volume of the slave trade in Thrace. These, this was Thracians selling other Thracians into slavery to people buying from Greece and other parts of the Mediterranean world. So archaeologists have found coinage in burial mounds. They found hordes of Roman coins minted from around 130 B.C. to 30 B.C., and this is all around the end of the Roman Republic, that tell a story about how many people this particular community were selling into slavery and the way that the archaeologists traced it out was that this amount of money found in these hordes equated to exporting about 30,000 slaves a year to Rome. Is that right? That's right. How did the archaeologists know that this was money from the slave trade? I think that in this particular area, they were
1: very well known for exporting people into slavery. I believe they were near the Black Sea. And the archaeologist looked at when the coins were minted, which was the late Republic. And I guess they did some backwards looking at what they would have been exporting at this point in time in the quantity where they would have had that surplus.
0: And they kind of added it up to being like, this is about the number of people that this particular tribe exported per year to the Romans in slavery. Yeah. And
1: I think you also like have to be aware that not every area of Thrace was as wealthy and had like gold and silver and like that's thinking about as a monolith and they weren't a monolith. So this particular tribe was near the Black Sea. They were very invested in the slave trade because they were near to the port. And that is one of the things they were known to export.
0: And probably that slave trade was really being fed by the Thracian raiding culture, like Thracian on Thracian violence, basically.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Thracian on Thracian violence. And also, as we mentioned last time, some Thracian tribes particularly the Getai, even sold their children into slavery. We don't know why they did that.
0: Well, probably for the same reason Romans sold their children into slavery, because of poverty. Potentially,
1: yeah. The thing we know about Thracians is that at least the aristocracy and potentially just the common Thracian men took many wives, so potentially that meant many children.
0: A surplus of children, which is obviously a horrible way of looking at anything, but that's the reality we're looking at here.
1: And as I said, not every area in Thrace had gold and silver and great fields for tilling and places to grow their own vine or have their own exports. Some areas were not quite so lucky and they had been skirmished over for a long time.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so there were lots of ways that Thracians might wind up enslaved to Rome. And I was really interested in the relationship between Thrace and Rome, which is very contentious. And I asked Jen to look into that a little bit for me.
1: And I did. So Thrace and Rome had a really uneasy relationship. It took Rome about 150 years to finally conquer Thrace and turn the region into a Roman province. Different tribes were at war with with Rome throughout the Roman expansion into their territory. In 168 BC, after the Third Macedonian War, Thrace, as the Romans called it, became a client kingdom to Rome. Towards the end of the first century BC, Thrace lost its client kingdom status and the Romans appointed all the Thracian kings.
0: Just wanted to stop here because I was just like, okay, so what does it mean to be a client kingdom to Rome? Does that mean that you can pick your own king but you have to pay a tribute? That is exactly
1: what I think it means. And essentially, all the different tribes who were never going to follow one king, and there were times that the Thracians tried to organize into empires like the Dacian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, but they didn't really work because the Thracians were so different. So Rome was like, great, this is how you want to behave? Okay, fine, we pick your kings now.
0: They basically, like, revoked their client kingdom status because of bad behavior, because the Thracians refused to be a united front. They refused to agree with the Romans and say, yes, we are one kingdom, we have, we're called Thrace, and we follow one king, that we pick or you pick. Like, either way, that was not going to fly with the Thracians.
1: No, because they were, as we said in the last episode, anywhere between 90 and 200 tribes, given the time that we're talking about, and they didn't necessarily like each other, and the Getae weren't going to follow a king who was from the Bessai or the D or the Maidae. They just weren't going to do that. And the Romans were like, well, fine, we're going to pick who's in charge of the Getai and the Bessai and the D, and they're going to be loyal to us and screw you. So this is really important because this is the time we're interested in, the end of the first century BC, because this is when Spartacus would have been alive and interacting with the Romans.
0: This time period when the Romans decided that they were picking the Thracian kings. Exactly.
1: And all this tension between Thrace and Rome is going to come to a head. It's going to be the thing that's fueling lots of Thracian slaves into Rome and a lot of Thracian animosity against Rome.
0: If um, Rome is working to conquer Thrace, then it's taking a lot of war captives and a lot of those people wound up in slavery. Exactly.
1: So... At this time, many tribes were still in open rebellion with Rome. Mithridates was fighting the Third Pontic or Mithridatic War, and some Thracian tribes, like the Getai, were on his side. They were Rome's enemies. The tribe Spartacus came from, the Maidae, fought on Mithridates' side during the First Mithridatic War, which was 88-85 to 85 BC. And right after that, Sulla conquered the Medai and ravaged their land. By the time of the Third Mithridatic War, which was 75 to 63, the Medi were fighting on the Roman side. That's how badly they had been subjugated by Rome.
0: Yeah, so the Maidae was Spartacus' tribe, theoretically.
1: They were what some historians believe was Spartacus' tribe. And for the way in which we're going to tell the story, we're going to agree with that.
0: Yeah, and the Maidae had a particularly contentious relationship with Rome, as we're seeing.
1: The Thracians were often used as Roman mercenaries and auxiliaries to the Roman units, meaning that they got to fight under their own tribal chieftains, and according to their own customs, they got to use their own weapons and their own skills, but they were still under the orders of Roman generals, which probably rankled them quite a lot.
0: A lot of the time they were mercenaries in Roman wars and in Greek wars, like they were hired muscle, basically in the ancient world.
1: Well, yes, and what happened during this time when we talked about the Lot of Fundia was there was a lot of fighting going on. And the Romans really needed muscle. They really needed people to fight their wars. So a lot of these client kingdoms had a choice. You can send us wealth or you can send us men to fight. And for people like the Thracians, they were like, well, let's go fight. Yeah, they're like, well, this is what
0: we're good at. We might as well do it. Why would we send you gold when we could just go fight and get more gold? Question, did Julius Caesar ever use Thracian mercenaries? Like, for example, in the Battle of Pharsalus? Number
1: one, Julius Caesar would have come up against Thracians while he was in his Gallic Wars. He either potentially would have used them as spies on different people in the Gallic Wars because they would have been different tribes He probably didn't like their Gallic neighbors. He also might have fought against them during the Gallic Wars. But we know... For sure that in the Battle of Pharsalus, the Thracians sided with Pompey Shark. So Julius Caesar came up against the Thracians at the Battle of Pharsalus.
0: So Pompey had bought up all the Thracian mercenaries because he had his contacts in Asia. Julius Caesar, what do you have to say to that?
1: That scoundrel Pompey was out fighting in Greece and Asia and took the Thracians as his mercenaries instead of letting Julius Caesar's gloriousness have those wild wild Thracians on his side.
0: Is this a point of contention between you and Pompey among many? Yes among many. I mean it was a very clever thing to do but. So Julius Caesar had to fight against the Thracians during the battle of Pharsalus. You heard it here first.
1: Well yeah and when you think about it once Mithridates had been quieted all of those Thracian tribes would have had their allegiance that they probably would have had to pledge to Pompey and Rome.
0: Yeah, here's another question that I had. So when I was researching the Gauls, one of the things I found was that there were stereotypes about the Gauls and sometimes stereotypes about the Germanic tribes that when these people were taken into slavery by the Romans would sometimes dictate what happened to them and where they wound up. For example, Gauls, and I believe also Goths, were seen as big, tall, strapping, hardy people who could basically hold up under difficult physical conditions. So a lot of the time, people from those regions taken into slavery wound up on Latifundia. So my question to you is, were there any stereotypes about the Thracians among the ancient Romans that affected where they might have wound up when they were enslaved?
1: So yeah, that's a really good question. There were. The Thracians were considered wild and unpredictable, particularly the men. They were seen as lazy and hard to control, and there's not much else about them. It's just a lot of stereotypes with them not wanting to work So it kind of makes sense to me that the most famous Thracian slave we know about is a gladiator. And I'd also say that, like, the men who were put into Greco-Roman slavery... They would have taken the losers in battles who were
0: survivors. So they would have taken warriors. Absolutely. And the warriors might be like, this is not the kind of work a warrior does. Uh, This is beneath me. I'm not doing it. Or... They might have
1: been not just lazy, but just really wild and unpredictable and not wanting to get involved
0: in whatever you're making them do. I think that's one part of the stereotype among Greeks and Romans about the Thracians is that they are wild, unpredictable, and hard to control. And they very much did not
1: want to have like a big group of Thracians as slaves in the same area because they felt like it was just asking for trouble. Either they'd fight amongst themselves or they would give you a lot of trouble like uniting together.
0: Like they'd rile up your enslaved workforce. So if you're a Roman slave owner, that's bad. And some of that is
1: difficult to parse away from the Spartacus legend, which became so pervasive.
0: How old is that stereotype? Does that predate Spartacus?
1: I am not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure it's in Colomel and other places who are obviously after Spartacus. So it's difficult to know how much of that is being fed by the legend of Spartacus.
0: Really interesting point. We're kind of getting conflicting accounts there because we're also seeing some sources like Libius, said that they were, quote, best quality slaves coming out of Thrace. I'm going to tell you why I think that's true. Thracian women
1: were considered to be hard workers. They did more than their share, probably because a lot of them had to pick up the work in the villages when their men were away at war. This is obviously terrible. There's nothing okay about the stereotype, but essentially men were difficult and hard to control and women were really hardworking and really valuable.
0: It makes me think of that aristocratic warrior culture where the men just kind of piss off and go war with their neighbors all the time, whereas the women had to hold down the fort. They had to be the wants to manage the farms and manage the trade and all that stuff. Exactly. And that is exactly what we're seeing here in the women. Yeah, it's almost like the stereotype of the hyper-competent woman and the lazy man. Like, you see that in American sitcoms reproduced a lot, like in The Simpsons and stuff. And obviously, the, the edge to it is a lot softer, but there's still that underlying kind of misogyny is that the men get the privilege of lazing around and being goofy, while the women have to kind of keep things humming in the background.
1: I think the reality is, like, if we knew more about their culture, it'd be really interesting to see how much women were actually ruling in absentia and what was going on while their men were away at war. And I I suspect that this is probably true for a lot of martial cultures. While their men were all fighting, someone had to keep things going. I think the reality is women were doing everything it took to rule their tribe, to have negotiations with others, to produce Goods like pottery and wine and crops and jewelry and everything else while their men were all fighting. And the men who did stay and who were artisans and they were not warriors were not looked on as favorably as the men who went off fighting. So it really behooved you to go off and fight. So if everyone is going off and fighting, somebody has to be here doing the work. And this is the valuable work that keeps everything moving along. So anyway, I want to talk a little bit more about female slaves. So in ancient Greek comedy, calling someone a Thracian girl was the same as calling them a sex slave.
0: That's really shocking. Yeah, it's
1: super shocking. This is because in ancient Greece, it was a common practice to take Thracian women and girls as bed slaves, and often they were used as wet nurses.
0: It makes sense because if these women were used as sex slaves a lot, then they'd be pregnant a lot. Everything about this is
1: awful. It's like, there's no way we can talk about this without telling you that it is the fucking worst.
0: There's really no way to talk about a lot of this stuff without delving into slavery and a lot of times rape and sex trafficking. And that's the reality of some of what we're looking at here. If we want to talk about the reality of Thracian women being sold into slavery. Yeah, they were sold into
1: slavery a lot of times into sex slavery.
0: Yeah, a really ugly thing we're looking at here. But um, it's important to note it because we don't want to gloss over some of these details.
1: And a lot of this slavery was Thracian on Thracian slavery, as well as Greek on Thracian slavery and Roman on Thracian slavery and everywhere in the ancient world where they took slaves. No culture that we've covered so far didn't do it.
0: Yeah, this was really, really common everywhere. I mean, the Gauls did it, the Goths did it. That doesn't mean there weren't cultures that didn't do it, but the cultures we've touched upon so far all built
1: their empires and their republics and their countries on the backs of other people.
0: So tell me more about the Maedai, Jen, Spartacus's tribe. We've touched a little bit on their history during the Mithridatic Wars, which was pretty close to around when Spartacus rebelled. So we know that they had a contentious relationship with Rome then. What else do we know about them?
1: We know maddeningly little about the Medi, Spartacus's tribe. We know that it was a nomadic tribe and that they fought against Rome during the first Mithridatic War. And we also know these tiny little tidbits from Wikipedia. Quote, in 89 to 84 BC, during the First Mithridatic War, the Maidae overran Macedon, looted Dodona, and sacked Delphi as allies of Mithridates. It is said that they made a habit of raiding Macedon when the king of Macedon was away on a campaign. Sulla, after this, ravaged the land of the Maidae. Aristotle recorded that Balinthios was the maiden word for a species of wild aurochs, or wisons that lived in the region. So... Let's just break this down a little bit. The Maedi were first friends with Mithridates, and during the first Mithridatic War, they overran Macedon because they were like, "Oh, Macedon, we dealt with you and Alex the Great. We just want to raid when you're not here."
0: Soon as the Macedonian king's backs were turned, they're like, "Woohoo!" They were like, <laughs> "That was like a really evil elven laugh that you just did." <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified. <laughs>
1: You should be. I come from Thracian stock, I think. Thracian
0: stock, you're Germanic stock, you're a vampire. I'm a total war elephant. Anyway.
1: So they overran Macedon, got to Dodona, which we talked about in the last episode. It was this sacred grove where the trees could tell the future. And the Thracians were like, fuck this noise. And they sacked it. Sacked it. Looted it. And then they were like, and just for grins and giggles, let's go to Delphi and sack that too. (laughs) Fuck that shit up. Yep. And in addition to that, the Medai were a nomadic tribe. So they didn't have like one set home, which makes sense. They were probably pushed around a lot by all the changes in who was in charge of what area. Different power struggles in different regions. Different power struggles in different regions. But they were... One of the more far north tribes. And they came into contact with European buffalo, which is like so cool.
0: So an aurochs is a really, really big cow, from what I understand. Maybe a buffalo kind of an animal. A bison is like a European buffalo.
1: Yeah, like buffalo, bison.
0: In addition to exporting slaves, horses, jewelry, and warriors, the Thracians also produced and exported their own wine. The fields of Thrace were fertile with beautiful healing springs and fresh waters, perfect for growing wine grapes. They produced their own wine, which they drank unwatered because their wine was less strong than that of their Greek neighbors. Interesting. So it's possible that the
1: Scythians, who interacted more with the Thracians, who had less strong wine than the Greeks, might have drank their wine unwatered because that was the Thracian custom.
0: Well, Thracians definitely did drink their wine unwatered.
1: Yeah, but what I'm saying is the Scythians, the Greeks were always like, "Those Scythians are so hardcore, they drink their wine unwatered. It's like, yeah, because they were interacting more often with the Thracians who drank their wine unwatered. That was their culture.
0: Yeah, well, there was a lot of cultural exchange here, I think. They also produced their own barley beer, which they drank through a straw. And don't want to get old beer in your beard. Right, no beer in the beard. No beer beard. No beer beard. You want to avoid the beer beard, so you use a beer straw. Look, this isn't a problem I have personally, but I imagine if you had a beard, it might be an issue.
1: If you had a long, glorious red beard.
0: Red beard, like Rhesus from the Iliad. (laughs) Rhesus definitely drank his beer through a straw after a long, hard day of battle. Kicked back with a mug of beer and a big old straw.
1: Oh, he had to.
0: I'm picturing it now. So here's a fun fact. They also imported cannabis from their neighbors, the Scythians. Like the Scythians, who were very 420 friendly, the Thracians would throw the stems and seeds of the cannabis into the fire and inhale the smoke. And we don't know if this was related to any ritual practices or just for fun. Probably had to do with ritual practices, but probably also for fun. I don't know.
1: We can guess. I mean, I imagine at the dionystic and bendis
0: and codis orgies you know things got a little loose (laughs) they let it all hang out they also wash their junk before the orgy codis would like to remind you to wash your junk before the midnight (laughs) battlefield orgy wash your junk before the orgy codis says wash your junk (laughs) so anyway jen what was life like for women in ancient thrace
1: Thracian women, just like men, were heavily tattooed. Tattoos, as we mentioned earlier, were a sign of social status. Thracian women had sleeve tattoos on their arms and legs in either geometric symbols or images from nature. They had tattoos on their chest and some even had them on their face. Tattoos added value to a person. It showed up their high rank in society.
0: So the more tattoos you had, the more elaborate tattoos you had, the higher your rank. And also probably the more you'd achieved. So I imagine some of the
1: tattoos were probably rituals for different things people achieved in their life. Like you might get some for different battles or I don't know exactly because we don't know exactly, but getting a tattoo is a big important thing. The more of them you have, the more important you are.
0: They were seen as living art by the Thracians, but they were probably also had a lot of ritual and social significance. It wasn't just like, I want to get this beautiful thing tattooed on me. It was like, you know, this means something. I mean, not to say that other people now don't get tattoos because they mean something, but it was more ritualized.
1: Each tattoo would have a meaning. It would symbolize something and everyone within the tribe would know that. So it wouldn't just be incredibly personal to, you know, whoever had the tattoo. It would also have a deeper meaning to their culture and tribe at large.
0: Yeah, so like most Thracians would probably know what the meaning of another Thracian's tattoos were.
1: Yes, and like I said, some might have been related to battles, they might have been related to being a priestess, or to having children, or we don't know.
0: Yeah, we don't know what the language of the tattoos was, but we assume that there was one. Exactly. So this
1: was incredibly different for the Greeks and Romans, who saw tattoos as a sign of branding. Upper class Greeks and Romans just didn't have tattoos.
0: Yeah, I think it was a sign of slavery, like they tattooed their slaves, right? And branded them, yeah.
1: So here is a quote from Adrian Mayer in her amazing book, The Amazons, on how Thracian women learn to tattoo. Quote, Clericus of Soli explicitly stated that Scythian women... The historical counterparts of Amazons taught the art of tattooing to Thracian women who lived on the northwestern frontiers of Scythia. A Greek philosopher who traveled widely and wrote extensively about Thrace and Scythia circa 320 BC, Clericas, reported that Scythian women, quote, used to decorate the Thracian women all over their bodies using the tongues of their belt buckles or pins of brooches as needles. After several generations, Thracian women began to add their own embellishments and other designs to the Scythian motifs.
0: We did a big episode on the Scythian women way back when we did our Amazon series, and I just really fell in love with that culture, and they were very into tattoos too. So I just really love this really ancient report from Clearcus about this cultural exchange.
1: I love being able to look at how all of these cultures interacted with each other. And the cultural bleed. No one culture was a monolith. Regardless of how Greco-Roman scholars or historians want us to believe, all of these cultures bled into each other and changed each other and have roots deep within each other. And I just find it so fascinating.
0: I think one thing that you really notice when you read the Greco-Roman accounts of different cultures around them is that they really do want to put people in clearly defined categories. And the Thracians are a people who really defy that way of looking at cultures because they're so fluid and they take on so many different things from their neighbors. And the tattoos seems to be something that was transmitted to them from the Scythians.
1: Absolutely. And I think the Romans and the Greeks try to do this because they're trying to disguise the fact that their culture is also fluid. They're trying to clearly codify what they believe and what they believe is right above everything else. When actually in our last episode, we talked about how the Greeks had to essentially add Bendis, who's Thracian goddess into their calendar because the Thracians are like, well, you got to worship Bendis because Bendis is Bendis. She's not any of your goddesses. Give her a date or we walk. I don't know if they were actually going to walk, but they might have. And at that point in time, they were sort of policing Athens. So Athens was like, okay, Bendis is Bendis. We'll give her a day. And it is one of those things that you can see the Romans and Greeks trying really hard to be like our culture. And then eventually what was so successful about both their empires is they bent and they let other things in and then took it in as part of their culture. So
0: anyway, going to get back to the story at hand. Women. Yeah, so we're talking about women in ancient Thrace, and we're talking about the division of labor now.
1: And sorry, guys, we don't get a real sense of how labor was divided in Thrace.
0: Although we did make a lot of assumptions a few paragraphs up about how the men were lazy and the women were hard workers. Well, according to the Greco-Roman stereotypes, yes. Right, and those were Greco-Roman stereotypes. So... As I said, we've made some
1: assumptions about how the division of labor was divided in Thrace. The Thracians were really busy living in the moment and they didn't leave us too many written records, so we can only assume what life was like for women in Thrace. We know that some women chose to become priestesses and others probably worked in trades alongside their husbands. The religion of Dionysus was led by women, except for the Orpheics, and they were something quite different. And they had epic goddesses like Bendis and Cotis, who we talked about in the last episode.
0: Unmarried women in ancient Thrace had more freedom than their married counterparts. Unmarried women were able to have sex with whoever they chose. Yes, please and thank you. Sexual autonomy, A+. They were able to move with freedom and had a real value attached to themselves that was not tied to their sexual status. Their
1: value in themselves as a person and as a potential wife had nothing to do with their virginity, which is so different to the Greco-Roman cultures.
0: Yeah, because in Thracian culture, the man paid a dowry or bride price to the family of the bride when a marriage was arranged. And this is a departure, again, from another departure from what happened in Greece and Rome when a bride's family was expected to give the husband a dowry when a marriage was agreed. So the Thracian man was paying the family to marry the bride. Yeah, because here's what it's
1: like the married woman is gonna break it down for you.
0: All right, break it down, married lady. Okay
1: freaking Roman guy, anywhere between 25 and 50, sees a beautiful Roman girl, anywhere between 13 and 19, and goes, hey, I want to marry that girl. She seems perfect for me. I'm going to go to the family of this girl, and I'm going to see, is she number one? Still a virgin. Is she number two, gonna have enough money so that when I take her into my household, it's worth my time?
0: They're like, I guess I'll take this woman off your hands if you pay me a whole lot for it. If you
1: pay me a whole lot and if she is significantly younger than me and able to bear me children. So this 45-year-old and let's hope this 19-year-old, please, not a 13-year-old, are now married. Now, let's talk about what happened to Thracian women. So a Thracian guy sees a Thracian woman who we've got to assume is somewhere between 13 and 25 or whatever.
0: Do we know anything about age differences in Thracian marriages? We probably don't, right?
1: We don't know the ages. They're mysterious. But we're assuming that they still married him young. And they're like, hey, I like that girl. I think I'm going to marry that girl. And the girl's like, all right. So he goes to her people. And he's like, I would like to marry your daughter. Here is the bride price I'm willing to pay for her. And, you know, if it's a warrior, you know he's got the plunder. And if it's an artisan, you know he's got whatever he's got. And they make a trade. And the woman, who has a value not attached to her being a virgin, because this guy might have fallen in love with her when they slept together, or, I don't know, when he saw her an orgy. We just don't know. They get married.
0: And uh, that is the end of their story. Or is it? Hopefully it's not the end of their story.
1: (laughs) That just takes a dark turn. I told you the married woman was going to break it down for you. (laughs) All of a sudden, it's not a very pretty picture. I think the thing is, there's always a value placed on a woman. And what I appreciate about the Thracian culture is it's not a value based on the chastity of a woman. Again, they are still paying for the woman, but I don't think the bride price was ever reduced because a Thracian woman had slept with someone else.
0: Yeah, so virginity did not have cultural currency here.
1: You could have just said that, but I just went on a tangent instead.
0: You did. Unmarried women were allowed to sleep with more or less whoever they wanted, which was pretty great. Thracian women were seen as tough. They rode wild horses. There's evidence to suggest that at least some of the tribes would have had martial women who fought beside men in war bands. We believe this because we can see images of Thracian warrior women in famous Amazon frescoes, and we know that they're Thracian because of their distinctive shields, caps, and weapons. But we don't have any written evidence of Thracian warrior women. We don't have any written evidence of a lot of factors of Thracian life unless they're written evidence by Greek and Roman writers who are writing from outside the culture. So all we can do is speculate that potentially there were some women who chose to live a warrior's life. Once a woman agreed to be married, though, her life changed dramatically. Her sexual freedom was gone. She was married to one man for the rest of her life. But many Thracian aristocratic men practiced polygamy and took many wives. So this was not a great trade-off for women. Honestly, I don't know, Jen. I'd rather stay single and just enjoy the freedom here. I mean, yeah, if this
1: was my culture, I'd obviously be single.
0: Yeah, Thracian burial practices throw an interesting light on Thracian plural marriage, so let's dive into those. Thracian kings and aristocrats left behind huge burial mounds that were testament to their wealth and life. It's because of these burial mounds that we can piece together the rich culture of the Thracians. We know a lot about what they valued and what they produced because of what archaeologists have found in the burial mounds that dot across the remains of the ancient Thracian landscape. It's believed that there are between 10,000 and 60,000 Thracian burial mounds all across Bulgaria alone.
1: So Thracian burial mounds remind me a lot of the Celtic burial mounds here in the UK. Essentially, they sort of look like a hill or a slab of rock on the outside. And on the inside is a chambered room or rooms, depending on the size of the mound, filled with all kinds of beautiful artwork on the walls, gold and silver treasures, jewelry, chalices, all the things my magpie heart longs to have, and the bodies of a Thracian king aristocrat his favorite wife, and potentially his favorite horse and chariot. Thracian funerary rites aren't very well documented and, of course, varied widely across the tribes, but we do know that some tribes constructed massive mounds and filled them with gold, riches, favorite horses, favorite wives, as well as the dead aristocrat. Burial mounds have been found that date all the way back to 5000 BC, containing ancient gold and silver treasures, including cups, pitchers, jewelry, coins, necklaces, and even a nine-piece set of golden goblets. And this suggests a cultural exchange with Greece, where nine people was considered to be the optimal number for a dinner party. The of chieftain had a similar set in the Gauls episode.
0: That's right.
1: Remember that? Yeah, it all comes around again. Some of the oldest gold treasures in the world have been found in Thracian burial mounds. Ancient sources also weigh in about how a Thracian funeral went down. According to Herodotus, this is what an upper-class Thracian funeral was like. Quote, The wealthy have the following funeral practices. First, they lay out the dead for three days, and after killing all kinds of victims and making lamentation, they feast. After that, they do away with the body, either by fire or else by burial in the earth. And when they have built a barrow, they initiate all kinds of contests in which the greatest prizes are offered for the hardest type of single combat. Such are the Thracian funeral rites. Those who dwell above the Christonians have yet other practices. Each man has many wives, and at his death there is both great rivalry among his wives and eager contention on their friend's part to prove which wife was best loved by her husband. She to whom the honor is adjudged is praised by men and women alike and then slain over the tomb by her nearest kin. After the slang she is buried with the husband. The rest of the wives are greatly displeased by this, believing themselves to be deeply dishonored.
0: Prussian funerals remind me of Dothraki weddings, right? Like, it's boring if a few people don't die. <laughs> oh, yeah. And don't have, like, these, like, contests for who's
1: the strongest or who's the best wife or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and the winner gets to be slain over the tomb of her husband and buried with him. You
1: know, I love my husband very much, Jenny. I am gonna go out on a limb and say that I am not the best wife because I do not want to be slain over the tomb and buried with my husband should he go first.
0: Thank God I'm single. (laughs) Part of me was like, well, is that really true or is Herodotus making things up? But apparently, according to the archaeological record, they are finding women's bodies in the tombs with the husbands. I don't know if that means that they were slain at the time of the burial or if they just died later and were buried with the husband.
1: Yeah, and Herodotus is speaking about certain tribes in certain areas. So it's difficult to extrapolate and say that this would be all Thracian tribes or that all Thracian tribes practice polygamy or plural marriages. We don't know. We just get these little bits and pieces and Herodotus says Thracians and you're like, oh, is that something about everyone or just the same? Okay,
0: I don't know. There is something fascinating here. It's like a, you know, a hint that the women in some Thracian tribes were indeed martial and they did fight. And it's not that clear in this quote whether Herodotus is saying that the women were fighting with swords for the right to die with their husbands or not, but possibly.
1: Yeah, but also they saw that as a real honorable death is to be slain by your nearest kin.
0: Which is pretty martial even if you're not fighting with a sword for that honor. Yeah. It kind of sheds a different light on the way that Herodotus is depicting the Thracians here, but maybe we're giving him too much credit because in his next breath, Herodotus has some shade to throw. (laughs) No, not
1: Herodotus. He never throws shade.
0: Shocker. He has some opinions about Thracian women. Quote, Among the rest of the Thracians, it is the custom to sell their children for export and to take no care of their maidens, allowing them to have intercourse with any man they wish. Their wives, however, they strictly guard and buy them for a price from the parents. To be tattooed is a sign of noble birth, while to bear no such marks is for the baser sort. The idler is most honored, the tiller of the soil most scorn. He is held in the highest honor who lives by war and robbery. So... Here's Herodotus throwing shade on a lot of different aspects of Thracian culture here. And a lot of stuff that we just talked about is possibly, you know, the way that Thracians were. We, we now see in this quote to be possibly stereotypes from the Greeks and Romans, and that should shock nobody. Oh, I'm clutching my pearls here. I'm explicitly wearing pearls to clutch at this quote. She wore pearls just to read this episode for you guys so she could clutch them. So one of the takeaways from this very catty quote of Herodotus is that he does not understand why a Thracian man would want to marry a woman who's had sex before. Oh my God! Why? Shock, horror. Well, before marriage, right? Why would any Thracian man want to marry a woman who isn't a virgin? It's that terrible. My grandmother used to say this to me all the time, especially if like I wore
1: like a top that was a little low cut. She'd be like, "Who's gonna want to buy the cow and then get the milk for
0: free?" I like number one, Grandma. I'm not a cow. Anyway, so Herodotus just cannot wrap his little patriarchal mind around why a Thracian man would want to marry a woman who wasn't a virgin and why he would agree to pay so much money for her. He also does not understand why you'd tattoo your nobility and why you'd honor someone who makes their money by war and quote-unquote robbery like the Greeks never practiced war. or robbery. To Herodotus, this world seems very backwards, but I'm also kind of thinking that maybe Herodotus was a little biased here. But to the
1: Thracians, a people who believed in war and plunder, putting stock in men who earned what they owned through force had real logic. The Thracians weren't interested in exalting the farmers and merchants. The upper classes in Thracian society went to war and made their money in plunder and slaves. The Thracians lived in a land almost constantly at war, whether with each other or outsiders. So they believed that those strong enough to hold that land were ultimately the ones who deserved to keep it. That's why they put more stock in warriors and quote-unquote robbery than in farmers and tradesmen. Warriors were the ones who made it possible for tradesmen and farmers to keep their lands and livelihoods safe. Warriors and mercenaries were vital to the success of the Thracian society just as much as farmers or tradespeople. All right, we've been building up to it all episode. Let's dive into that famous Thracian warrior culture.
0: We're going to talk about that in a little more detail here, and I cannot wait. So the Thracians,
1: as we've said, were a collection of tribes who didn't always get along with each other. We're just going to keep hammering that home. They fought fierce battles between themselves over resources and land, and they fought with their neighbors, the Greeks, the Scythians, and Persians. They were said to fight with the, quote, heart of Ares, or heart of the god of war, on the battlefield, making them a terrifying specter to behold.
0: The Thracians had their own unique style of combat. They fought differently than the Greek hoplites, Roman legionaries, or the Scythians. They fought in groups called the Peltast. They weren't trained to fight as a tightly organized unit. Instead, they were adept at skirmishes. They were known for their speed and evasiveness. The mountainous territory of Thrace made it easy for war bands to ambush their enemies from multiple directions, emerging from hills and forests, attacking from all sides. Then they would slip back into the forests and mountains to regroup. This ambush-and-run guerrilla style didn't conform to the Roman and Greek rules of war. Also, hilly forested country broke up the closely positioned Roman units and forced Roman soldiers to fight farther apart, which made them more vulnerable. This was an enemy who had the ability to be in all places at once. Much like the Gauls, these were individualistic warriors with a hero culture. They wanted to have a lot of space in the battlefield to do their own thing, to display their fearsome warrior feats, to make a name for themselves on the battlefield, by themselves, as heroes. But Unlike the Gauls, their fighting style was centered around stealth attacks, surprising their opponents and cleverly overtaking them. This ambush attack style made the Thracians hard to beat, and they became the boogeymen of their neighbors, Sparta and Athens. They also became the most feared infantry in the ancient world.
1: The name peltus came from the type of shield the Thracian tribes preferred. The peltae was a crescent-shaped shield made of wicker and hide, usually sheepskin. This was a lighter shield than the heavy bronze ones used by the Greeks, and it enabled the Peltas the ability to move faster during skirmishes. I like to think of the Thracians as these epic ghosts of the ancient battlefields, able to slip away into the shadows and run down from the hills and mountains like fog. Maybe I'm romanticizing this too much, but I'm going to go with it. I constantly
0: romanticize everything, so I feel you on that. The Thracian war retinue wasn't
1: complete without an epic outfit. And I found a quote that was too good not to share. This is a quote from Simon Anglim in his article, The Warriors of Thrace. Quote, contemporary illustrations of Thracian peltists show them wearing foxskin caps and simple tunics, or stripped for speed, and carrying pelta and javelins.
0: So by stripped for speed, do we mean, in fact, naked? I mean, I just read the words. Maybe. Jen just got excited at reading Stripped for Speed. (laughs) Let's try to focus here.
1: (laughs) Most also carried the traditional Balkan weapon, the Ramphaya or Falx, a one- or two-handed scythe with a curved iron blade, 120 centimeters long, which is almost four feet.
0: So the blade of this weapon itself was almost four feet. This is like a big sword attached to a spear.
1: Yeah, which could be head a man, hamstring a horse, or smash right through armor with a single blow. When in the 2nd century AD, the Romans fought the Dacians, the ancestors of today's Romanians, they had to deploy special units of legionnaires with extra heavy armor to face them. So, let's break this down.
0: Let's break this down. Let's do it.
1: So, first, the Thracians carried a special weapon called the ramfire or falx, that allowed them to... Hamster a horse, behead a man, or smash through armor in a single blow. One blow. And this is terrifying, and this is why they didn't need armor. The Thracians were known for their skill on horses, or not on horses, and for their ability to work effectively with long-range weapons like javelins and spears. But if you got up close and fought with them in hand-to-hand combat, they literally had a weapon that could smash through your armor in one
0: blow it does make sense that they wouldn't rely too much on heavy armor because number one they had to move quickly because they were guerrilla fighters who kind of melted into and off the battlefield but also number two they didn't let you get close to them they had this really large weapon that they could operate at long range to basically take you out before you got close
1: yeah and i'm gonna go back to the strip for speed so when I read that, I was like a little confused and then I thought about it. Also a little
0: overheated, not going to lie. A little overheated. I mean, you were too. Don't act all innocent over there. I don't think I'm capable of acting innocent, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Why I want
1: to come back to this is if you think about the way they fought, if they are stripped for speed, there's no clanking. There's nothing to give them away. It is possible that some tribes might have in
0: the buff. Like the less armor you have, less stuff on your body clinking and clanking and making noise, the easier it is to sneak up on people. Yeah, but even not having
1: shoes. Think about it. Like shoes can give you away the tread of a shoe or like, you know, anything.
0: So this explains why they preferred less heavy armor. The skill and safety for these warriors was in the speed with which they could move and in the long range weapons they carried. Not in the safety of an armored breastplate because the Thracian warriors literally had weapons that could smash through a breastplate. So their training, involved being able to move quickly and not rely on heavy armor for protection. Thracian soldiers were such a problem for the Romans that they had to have special legionnaires trained in how to engage in combat with them, because otherwise they would definitely get their asses handed to them. Badass. So these elite warriors could be part of your army for a price. Thracians became some of the most sought-after mercenaries of the ancient world. Thracian war bands were known to offer their services to Greek city-states, a lot of the time to serve as a police force, like we saw that happening in Athens in our last episode. And... Let's stop for a minute and picture this, right? A war band of tall and well-built men, maybe a few women, wearing distinctive fox skin hats that look a little bit like smurf hats, their pelté and cloaks, coming down from the mountains to see if there was any killing that needed to be done. Or, you know, some wars that needed fighting, because, listen, killing is what we do, guys. It's all we do. It's what we do all day. We specialize in this. And how do we know this is something that happened? Because we can see it in 5th century BC Greek pottery. We regularly see Thracians in their distinctive garb, getting ready for a fight, engaging in fights, and being part of the lexicon of the stories told on ancient world pottery. So, Thracians had a history of being the people who did Greek dirty work. Since the beginning of Greece itself, and maybe even earlier, they showed up in the Iliad, which is really far back. The relationship between Thrace and the Greeks existed from the beginning of Greece, is what I'm taking from this. Thracian warbands were often hired for unsavory jobs, like assassinations, political murders, and policing city-states, like we said. Because the Thracians loved to fight and saw making your living as a professional soldier or mercenary as an honorable profession, they did not balk at this work. This work, as savory as it was to the Greeks, was the most honorable way to live your life to a Thracian. It meant you were strong and able to defend yourself and your people through your prowess as a warrior.
1: The Thracians were employed in every major military campaign in the ancient world. My favorite example comes from Alexander the Great's invasion of Asia. That's why I made it our cold open. Alexander the Great had tangled with the Thracians on his way to conquer Asia, and he knew a good thing when he saw one. And he was like, hey, you lost to my army, but here's the thing. You're also kind of epic and cost me a lot of lives. Want to join my army? And the Thracians were like, plunder and glory? Conquering Asia? Sign us up. So some of the Thracian tribes joined Alexander's army and marched onward to glory and plunder. They were on their way to tackle one of their fiercest enemies yet, war elephants.
0: This is the Battle of the Hydaspes, and we covered this in War Elephants Part 1, Alexander's Immortals. And it adds a layer to that battle that we didn't know about before, and it's really fascinating. So this is another quote from a brilliant article by Simon England called Warriors of Thrace. Quote, From the 4th century BC onwards, Peltas, remember this was the Thracian mercenaries, became an integral part of Greek armies, and Thracians formed part of the army which Alexander took into Asia, where at the Battle of the Jalum, which is another name for the Battle of the Hydaspes in 326 BC, they faced the most awesome weapon on the whole battlefield, Indian war elephants. The elephants came in second best. Alexander sent the Thracian light-armed against the elephants, for they were better at skirmishing than fighting at close quarters. They released a thick barrage of missiles on both elephants and drivers. The javelin barrage soon told, a number of elephants going berserk and charging about aimlessly. The Thracians alternately chased and fled from the elephants, using typical skirmish tactics, sometimes closing in to attack an elephant at close quarters when it became isolated from the rest, using foxes to hack off the elephant's feet. So... There are so many reasons. Now that I know more about Thracians and how they fight, why a Thracian battle unit would be the best unit possible to send in against an elephant unit.
1: We're actually recording this not that far away from when we recorded our first War Elephants episode two years ago. And I was not the most massive fan of War Elephants. I was like, ah, military history. I don't know how I feel about this. And of course, Jenny won me over to Team War Elephant. But once I found this note about the Thracians, I was like, oh my goodness, the deeper we delve into this, the more... Thank you. The cat fascinating it gets because we talked back and forth like what kind of person would you send in to face a raging war elephant? And I was like, well, you'd send a drunk me, wouldn't you? Well,
0: actually here's the thing. and <laughs> Actually Here, Here's who you'd send in to face a war elephant, Jen. You would send somebody who, number one has a long range weapon with a giant blade at the end used for hacking at the elephant's feet, which if you listen to the war elephants episode, that was a tried and true tactic of fighting war elephants. You'd send in somebody who knows how to skirmish to get close and then back off really quickly because a war elephant can frenzy and be really dangerous long before you can disable it. So that's number two, and you'd send in somebody who is absolutely prepared to die, has no fear. And that is definitely who the Thracians were. We talked about that in the last episode. They had the mindset for this.
1: Absolutely. And they were used to fighting men and horses, and they were used to fighting European buffalo or bison.
0: Well, we don't know a lot about that, but we just came across this fact that there were large animals in their territory, wisents and um, European bison, that they may have hunted so they may have been used to being around and you know hunting very large animals like this
1: to them this would be a new challenge and they would just take it on and be like all right let's go
0: i mean we're not gonna say outright that they were you know adept at bison punching but they might have been we do not advocate for bison punching please do not punch a bison no that is a dick
1: move dick move don't do it bison didn't do anything bad to you and you shouldn't be plundering other people it's just not okay It's like the sixth time we've had to tell people we don't endorse plunder.
0: I know. What are we doing wrong right now? (laughs) The Thracians were Alexander the Great's secret weapon when it came to tackling war elephants. They ran out into the fray. They used their epic falxes, those curved blades that could cut through a horse's flanks or a man's armor in one blow to hack off the elephant's feet. They were uniquely suited to this form of fighting because it required that the Thracians melt into and out of the battlefield Run towards the elephants and strike, and then run off while the elephants frenzied. It takes a certain kind of warrior to run into battle, either on horse or on foot, and take on a full-grown war elephant and win, and that kind of person was the Thracian.
1: But here's the thing. With all this glory, with all this fighting prowess, there is a dark side.
0: Oh, really? We haven't hit the dark side yet?
1: No, this is dark.
0: I thought we were well into the dark side, but no. Not darker than slavery, because that is the darkest,
1: but... This is pretty dark, What we're getting to.
0: Yeah. The people who were on the receiving end
1: of the Thracian warbands often didn't fare well. We've talked before about what happened when there was a siege or when a city was sacked in the ancient world. How horrible the experience was for an average person. In our first episode, How to Survive a Siege Part 1, we discussed what it looked like to live through a siege or sacking. We talked about the outcomes for people, either death, rape, or enslavement. Because the Thracians were so much larger than life, it's kind of easy to get caught up in their culture, to fall in love with them a little bit, and swoon. These are the people of Orpheus and Spartacus. What's not to love, I ask you? Well, let me tell you one more tale about Thracian warcraft. This is an infamous account of what happened when the Athenians hired a Thracian tribe called the Dee to sack the city of Mycolaeus. The Athenians said, hey, do whatever it takes to sack the city, but leave no survivors.
0: They unleashed the Thracians on this city.
1: They did. And this was not good. This is a quote from Thucydides. Quote, The inhabitants were taken off their guard for they never imagined that an enemy would come and attack them at so great a distance from the sea. The walls were weak and in some places had fallen down. In others, they were built low. While the citizens, in their sense of security, had left their gates open, the Thracians dashed into the town, sacked the houses and temples, and slaughtered the inhabitants. They spared neither old nor young, but cut down one after another, all whom they met The women and children, the very beasts of burden, and every living thing which they saw. For the Thracians, when they dare, can be as bloody as the worst barbarians. There in Mycolesus, the wildest panic ensued, and destruction in every form was rife. They even fell upon a boys' school, the largest in the place, which the children had just entered and massacred every one of them. No calamity could be worse than this, touching, as it did, the whole city. None was ever so sudden or so terrible.
0: The boy troop, Jen! The boy
1: troop? I mean, the Thracians killed everyone. The boy troop, men, women, children. People's pets? Yeah beast of bird and every living thing they killed probably they killed my plant collection including my new plant named psyche not psyche they like, would have the thracians even just decided to go into a boys school just for grins and giggles and killed everyone in the school i mean no bad thracians bad bad naughty Thracians. naughty
0: thracians naughty
1: but here's the thing This is the other side to the epic warrior culture. This is what happens when you're a mercenary and given orders to take no prisoners. And when I read this quote and came across this story, I couldn't not include it. This was the culture that forged Spartacus, that forged the man who would one day stand against Rome. And I thought it was important to include this story along with everything else to give you a fuller picture of who the Thracians were and what made them so feared.
0: So that's how the Thracians lived, how they loved, and how they warred. They lived for the moment, knowing that life was short and cheap. They didn't fear death, and they put their stock in violence, believing that men and possibly women who were successful at war and plunder were the heroes of their culture, because they had the skill and power to protect their people, all of their people, allowing others of their tribes to be vulnerable and have the ability to learn a trade. They warred with each other incessantly and frequently sold their own people into slavery, but they also produced some of the most beautiful jewelry and metalwork of the ancient world. It's hard to reconcile these images, Except to remember the story we recounted in our last episode about the Thracian tribe who, on the day a baby was born, lamented how terrible it was to be in this awful world, how many hardships the child would have to face until they once again returned to the blissful afterlife.
1: These were a people of contradictions, a people who believed in a beautiful afterlife, who left no stories of how they lived, only the beautiful artwork that adorns their tombs to remind us that they were here. These people bred the seeds of revolution that would one day sweep through the late Roman Republic like wildfire. These were the Thracians. So that's it for this week. bit dark at the end there. Join us in two weeks for a brand new episode all about gladiators where I will try to refrain from saying, Are you not entertained? Too much.
0: I think we're going to say that a lot. But we'll
1: try not to say it too much. And in the meantime... You can come find us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram.
0: And check out our Patreon. We've got exclusive extra episodes for Patreon subscribers that deal with stories we didn't get to tell in our longer episodes. You can join for just $2 a month. So we've got some Patreon members to thank today, don't we, Jen? We
1: do. Our first Patreon member is Courtney,
0: Joe. Thank you so much for supporting us. We know that times are tough for everyone and we just can't tell you how much we appreciate your support.
1: Yeah, I said it in the last episode, but I went through a big life change at the beginning of this year, just before the world decided to go through a big life change and things have been real uncertain. And it's just great that even in all this uncertainty, our patrons have been there for us and they've been helping us to keep this a reality. So thank you. Yeah, uh, sorry. My big life change was that I've gone freelance. It's
0: like, what is your big life change? I've grown an extra head.
1: No, I I already have the two, Jenny. That's true. Or if you're not into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can kick us a few bucks through our
0: Ko-Fi account, find a link to our amazing merch, and check out the show notes from our episodes. And if you're not able to help support us financially, and we understand, we really appreciate it when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Or just share the news about our show to your friends, family or anyone else you know who you know loves epic tales about the ancient world.
1: Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. We'll see you in
0: 2 weeks. Thank you so much.